Well, nice to see everybody uh, tonight. Wonderful to be with you. So uh, we're continuing in this series, which has no end, super duper Bible verses, because they're all super duper Bible verses. And the one for tonight was submitted by a wonderful man named Philip Schwab. Philip is a member, full-fledged member of this church from afar. He lives in Fort Worth, Texas. And Philip, uh, really? Some people are cheering for Fort Worth? I never heard such a thing. And, and so Philip is with us uh, through live streaming, services, Bible studies, all the rest. And he submitted the verse for tonight. I'll tell you about it. But did you know uh, we have a new thrust? We, uh, do you know Jason Ryan? Of course, he's been here, he and his family, for many, many years. And Jason has served in so many different capacities. Here's his new capacity. He's the online pastor of Sagemont Church. You ever hear such a thing? Now, folks, whether you like it or not, a lot of people are choosing to connect with churches online. We could debate it and argue about it and all the rest, but it's a reality. And so, um, for instance, Philip, who we're speaking about, is in that category. So we want to do a better job of helping those folks really feel even more a part of the church from afar. There are people who tune into this church from increasingly all over the country in some places where they can't find a good church. And so they tune in to hear our pastors preaching and then engage in Bible studies, and so on. And so what Jason is going to be doing is developing things like online small groups so there can be a little more interaction and accountability. And there's been a discussion even about providing counseling ministry through Zoom. You know how you do these things now? So anyway, that's a whole new thrust, online pastor kind of a, a thing. So that's, I think, pretty exciting. I have no idea how it works. I can barely turn on the computer, but uh, people a lot smarter than me are able to do it with great facility, so that's coming up. So God bless you, Philip. We're uh, glad to be with you, and thank you for the verse of Scripture you submitted. It's one of Philip's life verses. It is Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 13. We're going to get to it, but first I want to prime the pump a little bit uh, by asking you if you've ever thought about this particular question, what is life all about? People think about it all the time. Why are we here? What is the purpose? How do I find meaning in life? In fact, a very famous person, and I know you know about him, asked this very question. His name is Solomon. And Solomon was really more uniquely, you might say, positioned to wrestle with this question, the fundamental purpose of life, because he had, if you will, more of life than most of us have. He was extremely wealthy, and, and he had everything at his disposal, and so he could experiment, explore, and sample things way beyond what you and I are able to do, and without unduly criticizing Solomon, he did. I mean, wine, women, and song. Whatever was out there, he tried so as to fill the void in his life. That's what Solomon did. And so he 
diligently reflected on the nature of life and came to a conclusion about it and felt he had an obligation to tell others what he concluded. And this he did in a marvelous yet in some ways tricky book called Ecclesiastes. And it's in that book that Philip Schwab has found one of his life verses, the book of Ecclesiastes. So again, before we get to Philip's verse, just to establish a little more of a context, let's back up earlier on in Ecclesiastes, chapter 1, verse 2, vanity of vanities. Now, your, your translation might say futility of futilities. Do you have that? Anybody have that? Yeah, so you get the idea. It means emptiness. So, so vanity of vanity says the preacher. Well, who's the preacher? Well, this is Solomon. This is just another way of referring to Solomon in the context. He's the preacher. So he makes this. Well, it's a discouraging statement, folks. You know, this is why a lot of people don't spend much time in Ecclesiastes. It has the potential to be depressing. So, I mean, vanity of vanities, the preacher says, vanity repeats it. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What a pessimistic conclusion about life. And yet, it's accurate. It's biblical. And what he's getting at, you'll see, we'll establish this, is that life devoid of the giver of life is futile and empty. That's what he's getting at. Life without recourse to the author of life makes no sense. You, 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 you can't find meaning and purpose in life while at the same time not paying attention to the giver of life. And if you do that, what you come up with is futility. That's Solomon's conclusion. Furthermore, he says in verse 14 of chapter 1, I have, well, I've seen all the works which have been done under the sun. Please keep this uh, phrase in mind. We'll talk about it even some more. Uh, he, he, I've seen everything. He's not exaggerating. He was one of the rich and famous. He had access to everything, and his conclusion was, having seen all that there is to see, uh, he concluded it's all vanity and striving. Another phrase which is oft repeated in Ecclesiastes, it's striving after wind. We're going to talk about what that means as well in just a moment. Life lived under the sun, meaning life uh, lived um, in terms of um, just what you see and taste and hear, life apprehended by your senses, nothing beyond it, just what your eyes tell you, uh, just what you see and taste and touch and feel, life Earthly life, life lived under the sun, life without recourse to the vertical dimension. Life lived without outside help, just you here on the earth. That kind of life, Solomon concludes, that life lived under the sun is as foolish as a striving after the wind. It's absolutely futile. And so he's commenting here rather pessimistically on the emptiness and meaningful, meaninglessness of life. And, and, 
People seem to be on a constant quest for satisfaction, but Solomon says it's a vain quest. It will not succeed. Furthermore, he says in verse 8, the eye is not satisfied. People are on a quest for satisfaction under the sun. God being removed from the equation of life. Doesn't make sense, does it? To remove the giver of life from the equation of life. When that's done, and it's done by many, and I suppose all of us in here at one time in our lives did the same thing. That kind of life cannot satisfy. So the eye cannot be set. You can lend your eye to the best of what the world has to offer. Or whatever pleasures you may think are, are there. You can lend your eye uh, to it, but Solomon says your, your eye um, can't bring you satisfaction. It's not satisfied with seeing, nor is the ear filled with hearing. What you try to apprehend just with your senses. Remember, God's removed from this equation. What you just try to come to grips with with your senses was going to leave you unsatisfied. What was that group? I can't get no satisfaction. Is it Rolling Stones? No, that's a good hymn. We should sing. No. No. You know, by the way, those guys are good illustrations of that truth, of Solomon's truth. Um, the Rolling Stones, very musically gifted. Have you seen what they look like today? I mean, empty shells. I mean, they're, they look old before their years. They're drawn. Oh, they are old? Oh, okay. Forget about what I'm saying. Okay, then it fits. Okay, never mind. Okay. Even, 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 they, that's what I'm saying. Premature, you know, kind of, kind of aging. And, uh, you know, by their own admission, uh, unbelievably unbridled drug use and like Solomon, wine, women, and song. And it just left them, I mean, they just looked like empty shells to me. Fame, fortune, and all the popularity in the world. So what? Solomon says, it's vanity and vanity. And, and, and so, Solomon, in his high and authoritative position, you know, he was king of Israel. Uh, he tried just about everything in an attempt to find a satisfying answer to the question, what is life all about? And he very diligently implied himself to this quest. Uh, so we read in verse 13, I set my mind. This is what Solomon said. You, you see the deliberateness and diligence with which he set himself on a quest for meaning. I set my mind to seek and explore by wisdom concerning all that's been done under heaven. Here's what he concluded. It's a grievous task which God has given to the sons of men to be afflicted with. He saw the quest for meaning in life to be something that's a God-given thing. The giver, the author of life, Put it within us to be motivated to seek for the purpose of life. It's a God-given, very legitimate quest. Well, why did God put that in us? Because he wanted our search for meaning in life to end up at his footsteps. To end up with submission and dependence in a relationship with him, the giver of, of life. And apart from him, 
These are the words Solomon used. He said, it's a grievous task. And he spoke about being afflicted by it. And so Solomon is not unlike so, so many. Uh, uh, Psychologists call it existential depression. What does that mean? Look, you lose a loved one and you experience depression. Understandable. You're in a job that's not satisfying. You're depressed. Understandable. A uh, marriage comes to an end and you're crushed. Understandable depression. Existential depression is different. It's despair over one's existence. Nothing in particular, everything. Existence has left you empty. That's what Solomon is talking about here. What's the purpose in living? Why should I get out of bed each morning? What's the point of being here? That's what Solomon is wrestling with. And so he's referring to the quest for fulfillment in life once again as a striving after wind. So here you see the phrase again. I've seen all the works which have been done under the sun, and behold, it's all vanity. And here's the phrase, it's a striving after wind. So it's a very poetic way of putting something. The wind can be quite strong. It can be so strong, it could knock you over at times. And it could fool you into thinking it's concrete and solid. So if if you imagine yourself, therefore, trying to grab onto the wind because it feels so real, you'll soon see you've been fooled. You, you can't use the wind, as powerful a force as it is, as an anchoring point. That's what he's saying. Uh, there are things in life which have the illusion of reality and being a solid answer to the quest for meaning in life so that you try to use it as a mooring point. You try to latch onto whatever it is or a person is because it looks so real. And, and when you do so, whoof, poof, it just, it just, you're left empty. It's wind. It just vanishes. So that's what he's getting at when he talks about the sheer and utter futility of searching for meaning in life apart from the giver of life. So Solomon, once again, with all of his wisdom and resources, was fully engaged in the task of figuring out life. And what's his final conclusion? Okay, now we get to Philip's verse. Thanks, Philip, for your patience. Now we get to Solomon's grand conclusion in Philip's verse, Ecclesiastes 12, 13. The conclusion... All has been heard is fear God and keep his commandments. Why? Well, because this applies to every person. The wisest man ever to have lived, Solomon, came to this conclusion. When your quest for meaning and purpose in life has exhausted you, the conclusion can be summed up in these uh, Two words, fear God. This is the grand conclusion of life. Now, hang in there. We'll define what that means in just a second. But first, just, just notice it. It's simple, yet profound. Solomon reflected with diligence on life. 
And he experienced the best of that which life under the sun had to offer. Yet he remained quite empty and unsatisfied until he discovered what life was all about. And he felt this was his discovery. Fear God. This is Solomon's final word on how to experience satisfaction in life. Fear God. In these two words, Solomon wants us to see he has unlocked the mystery of life. These two words are meant to end our quest for meaning and purpose in life. Two words, fear God. So again, before we talk about what it actually means to fear God, uh, let's back up a little bit and be clear about this. It is a part of the human condition to hunger for food, to thirst for water, and all the rest. And it's just as much a part of the human condition to be motivated to seek meaning and purpose in life. That's part of being human. Everyone is on a quest for it. And you may be surprised once again to discover that it's God himself, the giver of life, who put this inherent desire into each of us. You can know this when you're about to share your faith with someone. You could know that someone is just like you. That someone is on a quest for meaning and purpose in life. When you bring Jesus to bear on their life, your being as relevant as relevant could be. When you're trying to help a pilgrim finding meaning and purpose in life, when you do so by seeking to introduce them to the giver of life, you're right on target. There is no more relevant message. And so Solomon said this in chapter 3, verse 10. I've seen the task, notice this, which God has given the sons of men with which to occupy themselves. Can you see? God has implanted in each of us an inclination to discover meaning and purpose in life. This should give you an edge and an advantage in your evangelistic endeavors. You already know before you start talking, that person is experiencing a God-given interest in finding a reason to be, in finding personal meaning and purpose in life. So again, why in the world did God lay this burden upon us? Well, I think he did it so that in our quest for meaning and purpose in life, we ultimately come to the end of ourselves and find our way to him. And so he has implanted a desire in us to find ultimate meaning in life and yet at the same time, if you think about it, he's frustrated our efforts in doing so. So Solomon declared this, chapter 3, verse 11. He, God, has also set eternity in their heart, yet so that man will not find out the work which God has done from the beginning even to the end. Can you see how puzzling Ecclesiastes is? So we know, each of us, that there's something bigger, something larger out there. And yet God himself has kept us from finding out what it is. That's what it says. Why has he done it? Well, I think God has made our quest for meaning in life to 
be meant to bring us to the end of ourselves so that we seek him. He loves us uh, so much that he will not allow us to find satisfaction in life apart from him. And he can't just tell us that because we're foolish like sheep. Therefore, he knows we have to have the experience of searching, even sampling, the wrong things until we are left with emptiness and thus motivated to run to him, to cling to him for blessing. And so God has implanted within us a notion of eternity. Look, he has also set eternity in their heart. It's, it's, it's a notion of ultimate things, things beyond space and time, things beyond what our senses can apprehend, things beyond our petty existence, day-to-day existence. You get up, you go to work to make enough money to buy enough food to have to be able to pay the rent day in and day out the grind no uh, it'll never satisfy because God himself has implanted in each of us a, um, a sense of of something beyond the humdrum of daily experience he has set eternity in our hearts and yet left to ourselves we cannot figure out what or where those eternal things, those things of significance, those things that matter left to ourselves, we cannot find what they are. We know they're out there. We're on a quest. And yet our quest is leaving us feeling empty. It's vanity. It's futility. There's a hunger and we can't satisfy it. As a result, we are confounded. We have an awareness of something more and yet we can't grasp it and it's God himself who has caused this kind of a crisis in us so that in the end we may be motivated to find our rest in him my favorite hymn is turn your eyes upon Jesus look full in his wonderful face and the things of earth see all the stuff under the sun they will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. But before we seek his glory and grace, I'm afraid because we're foolish sheep, we're given to a sampling of, of stuff under the sun until we come to the end of the search in frustration and maybe run to Jesus. Solomon finally did. Solomon finally found personal rest Solomon gave himself to causes and construction projects and women. How, well, how many wives? Did, hundreds of wives, right? And concubines and all. And he's extremely wealthy. All of this stuff. Finally, in the emptiness of it all, he came to the end of his search, realizing that God himself is the final answer, and therefore came to the grand conclusion, uh, the purpose of life is to fear God. Okay, what then does that mean so to begin with i've tried to come to grips with this this concept for myself what does it mean so i tried to simplify it a little bit uh, first it, to fear god means to respect his presence now don't don't take this lightly or for granted this fact god is here i i don't mean only in this place here he's present in fact, he's omnipresent, present to the max. Wherever 
there is reality, he is present. The reason why I emphasize this point is that, let's be honest, most of us, by human nature, act as if he's not. A God-fearer is somebody who has a continual awareness of the presence of God. That's what it is to fear God. No, it's not fear in, in this sense. It's to respect, in this case, his presence, his existence. Some people may go so far as to credit God with creation, but that's it. Then they, in practice, act as if he left it. After putting it all in motion, he's off. He's not present. He's not involved. He's not sustaining the very universe, the cosmos that he has created. And so most of us live our lives as if God is not present, as if he's absent. You can see this in decision making. You just, if it feels good, do it. So respecting the presence of God is one of the aspects of fearing God. Look, folks, he is here, meaning he is to be known he is to be followed. He is to be depended on. He is to be yielded to. He is to be obeyed. He is to be trusted. He is to be loved. All those things is what it means to fear God, is to acknowledge his presence. So to fear God means to respect his presence. And secondly, to fear God means to respect his transcendence. So he's here, and yet he's beyond. He transcend. He transcends here-ness. <laughs> He's wholly other. Though he pierced our space-time dimension, became enfleshed. See, this is the Christmas event. We're, we're celebrating, aren't we? He, he condescended and became enfleshed and made himself present in human form. His name is Jesus. But do not underestimate, don't, don't, don't unduly emphasize the humanity of Christ while missing also the divinity of Christ. So he's, here, here are the terms. He's imminent. Jesus is imminent. That means God with us, Emmanuel. But he's transcendent at the same time. He's the great beyond. So this is what it means to fear God. First, to respect his presence. Second, his transcendence. So though he is here, he is above all things. He transcends this material world. He made it, the world that is. He sustains it. He loves it, but he's out of this world. If you identify him too closely with the world, you get something called pantheism. Do you remember John Denver? Oh, man, you talk about a gifted person. Let's sing it. Country road. No way. Another hymn, baby. Poor John Denver was a pantheist. He so enjoyed the mountains of Colorado and all the rest, he attached divine qualities to the creation while ignoring the creator. You see, that's what happens if you overemphasize the imminence of God and forget his transcendence he created the world he's not to be so closely identified with it that he is the god of the lakes the god of the mountains the god blah, 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 blah. no 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 folks 
you and I are stuck in time. Try getting out of now. Go ahead. Give it your best shot. Try getting out of this moment. Now, I know how we try to do it. We try to do it by feeling guilty because guilt takes us out of this moment back into the past. Now, the other approach is to try to, is to be filled with anxiety because anxiety will take us out of this moment and take us into the future. But that's crazy. The rule of thumb is your mind should be where your body is. It's just simple. Your body is no longer in yesterday, and your body is not yet in tomorrow. Your body is right here. That's where your thoughts should be. So we need to resist a trip back into the past through guilt, and we need to resist a trip into the future, which we may not even have, through anxiety, and we got to stay in the present. We're stuck in space and time. Folks, you can't. Look at I want to show you something. I can't, well, I can't get through this solid piece, this thing. I'm stuck in space. I can't get back to yesterday, nor can I get into uh, tomorrow. I'm stuck in space and time, but God is not. He has created space and time, vehicles by which he accomplishes his purpose, and he gave us a place to be, a space and time. He made those things. He can use them for his purposes, but he's not obligated to them. You are. So am I. But he is not. He's eternal. He's not subject to time limits. He has no beginning nor any end. He's not subject to spatial limitations because he is omnipresent. He's in all places, all the time, fully. So he's transcendent. So to fear God is to respect his presence, but also to respect his transcendence. And as a result, he has no equal. What does this mean? We are not his equals. There is only one God, and you and I are not he. That's what it means to fear God. He is not only here, but he is here as holy other. I'm not a little God. As some faith groups say, you are a big sinful human. You're not a little God at all. He is God. That's it. Nobody else is. We're not his equals. He transcends us. He is our master, not our equal. God is my co-pilot is a very blasphemous, biblically incorrect statement. He's not your co-pilot. He transcends you and everything about. Now, I want to tell you something else about the transcendence of God, that's really, really good. If he's transcendent, that means he also transcends the sin which so easily entangles us. He transcends all that is unholy, but you and I are immersed in it, tempted by it, enveloped by it. No, no, he, holy God, transcends it all. That's why we worship him as being entirely different. His perhaps premier attribute is that he is holy. He's apart from the entanglements, the sin and entanglements, as it says in Scripture, that so easily ensnare us. So he's present, but also transcendent. Now, to fear God as transcendent, the one who transcends time means 
my time is not my time. So this idea is I'll use my time the way I want to use my time is not to fear God as the transcendent deity who owns time, who put you and I into it, gave us a span of time. It's a gift bequeathed by God. Therefore, we're indebted to him for time. And a God-fearer is someone who considers him with, the refer with reference to the use of time. We don't lay claim to it as our own. This is the day which the Lord has made. Not this is steward's time or Noe's time. No, 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 no. We're, we're stewards of what God has given us. If that's how you're living, you are a God-fearer. So that's, that's kind of what, what it means. And if you fear God uh, for his presence and transcendence, that means he is respected, revered, and worshipped. Again, that's what the word fear means. Not shaking your boots kind of a thing. It is to respect him and revere him as being here and yet being wholly other. So if I would one day wish to get out of this time into eternal time, I must fear God as the only one who could make it happen. So if you're wondering, what is it to fear God? If you wish one day to pass out of this limited, bounded time called life, <laughs> then you have to make recourse to the only one <laughs> who can get you through this into the next phase of existence. And that takes a deity who transcends time. If you understand that, you are a God-fearer. So then, to fear God means to respect his presence and to respect his transcendence. Now, folks, today, fears are on the rise. In fact, every age group today is filled with anxiety, interrupted sleep patterns, all the rest. Anxiety problems, panic disorders. It's quite a day of fear and uncertainty. But the one who has chosen to be dominated by the fear of God will not be quite so dominated by the fears of anyone or anything else. Can you see why it's such a good thing to be a God-fearer? Uh, the one who fears God is confident that no matter what happens, God is sovereign and God is good. That's what it means to fear God, to acknowledge his sovereignty and his goodness. So in an increasingly fearful day, it's the day in which we live, the God-fearer chooses to tremble before the Almighty rather than before anyone or anything else. The God-fearer acknowledges the realities of life. We can't escape those. But at the same time, sees God as being much, much bigger than these realities. So, for instance, when people are big and God is small, we fear people. Um, when circumstances are big and God is small, we fear circumstances. When uh, the future is big and God is small, we fear the future. OK, 
Can you see? Can you see what's behind Philip's life verse and what Solomon is talking? You see what's encapsulated in two little words, fear God? I'm telling you, folks, it's the formula for freedom from fear. Fear God as being bigger than anything else that may be assaulting or challenging us. The God-fearer sees God as being transcended, bigger than anyone or anything else. In this regard, I love this quotation by the great Oswald Chambers. The remarkable thing about fearing God is that when you fear God, you fear nothing else. Whereas if you do not fear God, you fear everything else. Can you see why Solomon said fearing God is the ultimate purpose of life? And how can you know for sure that one is a God-fearing person? Well, Solomon told us back in Philip's verse, the conclusion when all has been heard is fear God. How do you know it? By keeping his commandments. <laughs> That's the surefire evidence that one is truly a god uh, fear. If one professes to fear God, one will obey God. With perfection? I didn't say that. No, no, no. But as a pattern in life, to replace the old pattern of doing one's own thing, now one is bent more on doing God's thing, on obeying God. Remember when Jesus said, why in the world do you even call me Lord and don't do what I say? So can you see, oh, obedience is where the rubber meets the road. So this is not just an abstract, philosophical kind of a thing advanced by Solomon. Solomon is saying the grand purpose of life is to fear God. And you don't have to wonder whether you is or you ain't a God-fearer. Are you doing what God told you to do? That's what it says. You and I prove what we think about God and the way we live. Simple. So... Are we living in humble submission to the one who is above the sun? Remember what Solomon spoke about the reality under the sun and what a pessimistic conclusion he came to? That's the idea. God is above the sun. A God-fearer is someone who makes recourse to transcendent deity who dwells above the sun. So what is the source of a meaningful and purposeful life? Uh, what is the solution to emptiness in one's life? let it drive you to the giver of life. Simple as that. Acknowledge his presence. He's here. Acknowledge his transcendence. He's categorically different than you or anybody else. Stop depending on yourself. That's why I, I, I really don't like these things. Words like believe in yourself. Or we need to build up our children's self-esteem. Yeah, right. Like our kids need to be more self-involved. Like they, uh, 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 I, I hate these, these, you can be anything you want to be. These are just lies. No, no, no. The, the, the direction of things cannot be strengthen the self. It has to be a die, die to the self. Don't depend on yourself. Um, stop doing things your way. Don't believe in yourself. Hasn't your life taught you that that's a false belief? Shakespeare had one of his characters make this statement about the futility of life. Out, out, brief candle. Life's but a walking shadow, a poor player that struts 
and frets his hour upon the stage and then is heard no more. It is a tale told life. It's a tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury signifying nothing. Well, that is very uh, equivalent uh, to what Solomon's conclusion came to with regard to life under the sun. But one greater than Solomon and surely greater than William Shakespeare, Jesus himself made this statement. I came that they might have life and have it abundantly. You see? If you leave God out of the formula of your life, you're going to run out of answers to the question, what is my life all about? Don't do it. Don't do it. Uh, there is a relationship that makes life meaningful and complete, and without it, a person is left with a huge void in his life. Jesus knows this, and he said, I came that you might have life. It means full and meaningful and purposeful. I came that you might have abundant life. So the source of abundant life is uh, encapsulated in a relationship, isn't it? Not a philosophy, not in a self-effort, not in behavioral change, not in resolutions, not in self-help projects. No, the source of an abundant life is encapsulated in a relationship with Jesus, who is the giver of life. Don't you see? He came to save us from the penalty of our sin and much more. He even came to save us from the futility of life. Jesus came to save us even from existential depression. Jesus came to give us meaning and purpose in life. Jesus came to make us God-fearers so that we make good use of space and time knowing it's a passing thing. And that he is the key to eternal, unending time on the other side of this time. I hope you're a God-fearer. It's possible to be a church attender and yet, yet not a God-fearer. Wonderful to attend church. Don't stop there. Acknowledge the presence of God. Live in light of the transcendence of God. One way, way wiser than me or any of us, Solomon said, this is the conclusion when all has been heard. Fear God. Keep his commandments. This applies to everyone. Thank you, Philip, for offering this great verse. I'm glad it's your life verse. We might feel free to make it ours as well. And let's thank Almighty God for giving us a way out of the throes of uh, futility and vanity and giving us a meaningful, meaningful life. The Lord Jesus, we bow before you, acknowledging both your presence and your resurrection. You're God with us and yet God way above us at the same time. From that vantage point, you see all that which concerns us. You care about how we live. We're grateful. We're not intimidated by your involvement. We're honored by it. Oh, God in heaven, make us to be ones who come to the grand conclusion Solomon did. It's not that complicated. The purpose of life is to acknowledge your presence and your transcendence. Every minute, every hour, every day of this life. 
waiting for the time when you allow us to gain entrance into the life to come. As you were with Solomon, so too you are with us. We're grateful, O oh God, because you're the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. We're prone to be fearful about all the uncertainties of our day. When we begin to sense it, help us to fear you instead, for you're bigger than any circumstances that come our way. We do need outside help. Life lived under the sun is life not only empty, but filled with anxiety when we begin to experience it. Help us to look up and acknowledge your presence and transcendence. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.